Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This is an RNZ podcast. The policeman goes in, and of course he was completely confounded because he didn't expect to to see that. I mean, there's Sophie lying dead on the floor with blood all over the place and blood all over Weatherston. And he said to Weatherston, what has happened here? And Weatherston said, I've killed her. Hi, I'm Jesse Mulligan. And this is Crimes NZ, a podcast where we talk to those closest to some of Aotearoa's biggest criminal cases. In 2008, Sophie Elliott was stabbed to death by Clayton Weatherston, her university tutor and on-again, off-again boyfriend. Sophie's dad, Gil Elliott, talks to me about the murder of his talented 22-year-old daughter and his subsequent fight for the rights of victims. Just got to say up, up front, um, we're so sorry from me and from the rest of New Zealand. A lot of people follow the case really uh, closely and I'm sure you know the depth of feeling there is out there, but I just want to say that before we begin. Thank you. There are a lot of details which we won't get too deep into today, but tell us yep. from your perspective where you were when you found out that something had happened to her. Well, I was the manager of Dunstan Hospital Medical Laboratory and so I was here in Clyde, and um, which is two and a half hour drive away from Dunedin. And uh, I was sitting in my office and the general manager came in and said, there's a, a couple of people outside that want to talk to you. And I went outside and there were two police officers in uniform and they said to me, I'm sorry, but uh, we've got bad news for you. Your daughter has been fatally stabbed. And, and that's all I knew and that's all they knew. <clears throat> and um, so, I mean, it was such so traumatic to hear that because uh, it was the last thing that I would have thought could have happened, possibly happened to Sophie. We had two sons in Australia at the time and I was always concerned about them or we were always concerned about them because, uh, of course, you have no control over children anyway and when they're a long way away, you worry about them even more, as, as perhaps you might know. Anyway, I had to go back into the lab, tell the staff and organise the staff so that they had plenty to do and then told them that I was off to Dunedin. The police wouldn't let me drive, so they drove me the two and a half hours into Dunedin, which was pretty sad. Yeah. I didn't know anything and the driver didn't know anything. And, uh, yeah, that's what happened. And your wife was at home at the time of the attack as well. That was a, a detail which was particularly shocking for people and, and I'm sure was tremendously difficult for her. Yes, she was. And, um, yes, because she heard Sophie screaming and she uh, couldn't get into the bedroom because I'd put locks on her bedroom on Sophie's bedroom door and also on, on Leslie's door because I was going to be away here and in Clyde and uh, I wanted, wanted them to be safe and unfortunately Weatherston used that lock to lock her and him into the bedroom and uh, 
to kill her and to keep uh, Leslie from getting into the bedroom and, and um, uh, interfering with what he was going to do. So an absolutely deliberate uh, thing. It had nothing to do with Sophie provoking him at all. There wouldn't have been time to do it, and she wouldn't have been like that anyway. And why would she do it? Yeah. She was off to um, to Wellington to her new job the next day. And, uh, yeah, so no, certainly no time for provocation. Can you tell us a bit about Sophie? I mean, as you say, she was about to hear off for a new job. You must have been tremendously proud of her. Yes, well, she she had, had uh, interviewed for this job at uh, Treasury. She'd been taken on as a graduate analyst. In fact, the uh, Treasury Secretary came to Sophie's funeral and he said to us that Sophie was the best student in New Zealand that they'd taken on uh, in that draft and they were really looking forward to her starting there. So, no, I think that Sophie would have done extremely well. In fact, the... Um, Treasury actually gave $5,000 donation in Sophie's name to the university. Yeah, they were pretty upset about it. She, she was pretty brilliant by the sounds of things, although didn't necessarily always know it herself. Well, she never said that she was extra bright, but I, I saw her marks and always 96, 97, 98, that sort of, those sort of marks. Yeah. I mean, they were, they were startling compared to what I, <laughs> what I used to get at university. <laughs> Yes, no, she was a, she was a startling student. She had 23 A's and A pluses in four years, wow. 23. And all her papers in that last year were A pluses, and her dissertation was an A plus. So five, four papers on that dissertation, all A pluses. Did you see any red flags in the relationship with Weatherston? Well, I didn't. But then the, the Leslie and uh, I think it was so um, strange for Leslie and... Sophie to try and deal with, that they really didn't um, involve me in it. They thought he was a bit odd, but they didn't realise that he was actually controlling Sophie. And I only ever met him once when I came in one time. I used to come in on a regular basis, backwards and forwards, from Clyde to mm-hmm. to Dunedin, but I only ever met him once. Yeah. And he seemed OK to me. Yeah. Leslie had some concerns, I think, with the the age difference and, I guess, the, the power differential as well between the two. Well, he was 32 and Sophie was 22. He was much more uh, worldly wise than her. He'd been overseas. He'd been to he'd been to England and places like that. And Sophie had been to Australia a couple of times, but that was all. She, she was so nice. I mean, she came from an ordinary family. She'd gone straight through school, straight to university, and she, she did work, mind you, on the weekends. She worked at a, um, a video shop in the weekends. So it wasn't as she that she was completely naive, but compared to him, I guess she certainly wasn't as worldly as he was. Relationships like this, do you think it's... um, Very few of them will end up with this sort of thing happening, but do you think it's worth having a blanket rule or, you know, just some firm sort of boundaries around relationships between tutors and students, lecturers and students? Yes, I I think so, Jesse. I think that uh, if you are tutoring or lecturing to a particular student, then you should not have a relationship with them. After all, teachers can't. And um, and also, army personnel can't can't fraternise with uh, junior staff. Uh, So there's plenty of examples where you're not allowed to do that sort of thing. Had he been in a different department, that may have been slightly different. But he, he had direct influence on her because he was teaching her one of her papers. And, of course, it, it, it messed things up in terms of the other students because they didn't know what was going on. Yeah. They might have thought that he could favour 
Sophie, and uh, the department, of uh, course, wouldn't let him mark her paper, uh, the paper that he sent her. They wouldn't let him mark it. So, no, it, it caused a lot of trouble in the economics department. That's for real. And back to the incident itself, yep. people might not recall that actually when the police arrived, he came out and said that he had done it. There was no... No, well, he didn't come out. That was his... There was only one policeman that came up. Now, he'd got the wrong end of the stick in terms of the one-on-one call. He right. thought that it was a domestic incident, and he didn't think it was a killing. Because they, apparently they always make sure that two policemen, two police officers go to a site like that if, there's a, if they think somebody's been killed. Um, so he, he comes to our place, goes up the stairs, tried the door, the door was locked, so he banged on the door and he said, open the door or I'll, I'll bash it in. And we just didn't open the door. It's just a matter of pushing the little button on the inside. The policeman goes in and, of course, he was completely confounded because he didn't expect to, to see that. I mean, there's Sophie lying dead on the floor with blood all over the place and blood all over Weatherston. And he said to Weatherston, what has happened here? And Weatherston said, I've killed her. That's what he said, but that couldn't be used in, in the trial because that was too prejudicial. The other thing about it was the cop hadn't read uh, Weatherston's rights. Well, he didn't have time. He just went into the room. He was so flabbergasted himself, overwhelmed, if you like, the, the uh, officer was, and he just simply said, what has happened here? And Weatherston said, I've killed her. But that couldn't be used against Weatherston at the trial. A trial for you to go through, it's always going to be traumatising, but can you give us your view, first of all, your initial view of the justice system entering as a, a family member of the victim? What was what was your experience? What did you notice? I can tell you, Jesse, that I've actually done a paper in criminal law a few years ago now at Otago University and one or two other law papers as well. But So I did know a little bit about the um, Crimes Act but the Westminster adversarial system that we have doesn't include a victim. The whole system is about the offender, nothing to do with the victim. And in fact, um, when we asked to see the prosecution, to ask the police if we could see the prosecution, or that we wanted to see the prosecution, they said to us, well, you won't see them because they won't, they won't talk to you. And the reason for that, of course, is they're not representing the victim, they're representing the state. They don't represent the victim, the prosecution. In the end, they did have to see us, or they did have to see Leslie, uh, because she was a witness, because she'd got that door open by because it was a little hole in it, and she put a skewer in it and got a, got the door open when he was still stabbing Sophie. So, so she was a witness, so she had to go on the stand. So the prosecution had to actually interview her. But if that hadn't yeah. been the case, you would have felt pretty no, invisible in the process. You would have nothing to do with it. We would have been just like any other member of the public in the, in the courtroom uh, when, when it came time for the trial. The worst thing about it was, of course, there was deposition, so that was four and a half days, and uh, Leslie had to go on the stand for depositions, which was pretty traumatic for her. It was only a couple, two or three weeks after the killing. I don't know how she managed, to be perfectly honest. But anyway, she had to get up there and read her statement. And then, of course, she had to do it again at the trial. So yeah, can, you, can you explain to people the difference between depositions and, and you know what the, what the purpose of that depositions hearing is? Well, depositions to see if there's a case to answer. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's absolutely quite ridiculous because, of course, there was a case to answer here. It wasn't a who done it case. He was caught in the act. 
So why would you have depositions to see if there was a case to answer? In other words, should this go to trial? Of course it should have. So I thought, well, that was an absolute waste of taxpayers' money. At the time, I got on to the uh, Minister of Justice, which was Simon Power, and told him I thought it was ridiculous that they had depositions in our case. And he agreed with me, and they don't have depositions now in a case like ours. They Mm. only have it for ones where they don't know who did the crime. How long did the whole court process last for you? About 20 months in all, from the time he killed her to the time that uh, the trial finished was about 20 months. And then, of course, he appealed after that. So you've got to add that on at the other end as well. The appeal, I think, was about a year later. Yeah. Of course, um, offenders have the right to appeal. I mean, that's that's part of the criminal justice system. That's their right to appeal and at no cost to them, but certainly costs the taxpayer. It must so, have been pretty baffling for you, given how clear-cut it was. I mean, no, no one's suggesting that, you know, that... That uh, the, the accused shouldn't have a fair trial, but um, it must have been very difficult for you to rationalise yourself to be going through this for two years after what was pretty clear to you what had happened. I guess that's the yeah, nature not, of not only that, Jesse, but it was in Christchurch, not in Dunedin. The trial was held in Christchurch, so it was extremely difficult for us and all our friends and family, and very expensive. And and the trial was delayed a couple of times too. And um, our sons were over here ready for the trial and they had to sit around for about a month because the trial had been put off because they, they weren't organised enough. So, you know, to wait 18 months and then uh, have, have the trial put off twice after that, month, month each time more or less, was pretty galling. Yeah. yeah. Added to that the fact that your house was technically the crime scene too. Well, that was another thing. I mean, uh, it was a crime scene, and we couldn't get back in there. Uh, Leslie just had her old clothes on. We actually had to go and buy some more clothes for her because we had no access to our house. We we were in a motel. We um, we had to do had to arrange the um, a funeral from the motel. We had to arrange uh, you know notices for the paper. We had to do our eulogies all from the motel. So. This is how victims are treated by the criminal justice system. And then so at some point you get the message that Weatherson has decided to plead not guilty. And I imagine what's even worse, to use the defence of provocation. Yeah. Yes, the partial defence of provocation. Well, that's gone now, of course. But, I mean, that was a, that was a crock anyway. I mean, it, it, it didn't comply with the rule of law because it was ambiguous and clumsy, the wording of it. Most people couldn't understand it. That was part of the reason why Judith Ablett Kerr brought Greg King on board because he had a a, a bit of an idea about how the uh, partial defence of provocation worked. I mean, it didn't get people off, but it it, did, it could reduce the the charge from murder to manslaughter. That was the thing with it. But anyway, the appeal. I was just going to say to you when he appealed, mm. he appealed on two grounds. One was veracity, which is truthfulness because he wasn't truthful, but then narcissists are not truthful. Hmm. And uh, everybody knows that. And he said that uh, the prosecution called him a liar in court and he wasn't a liar. So that was that was one of the reasons that the, the appeal was taken on, to prove that he wasn't a liar. Of course, they didn't prove that because the appeal judges uh, didn't agree with the QC at the time, Robert Lithgow, who brought the appeal. And the other one was provocation, interestingly, because it was a 
article on TV at the time. In the very early days of the trial, there was a, the Law Commission president was interviewed about provocation on TV. I think it was TV3, mm-hmm. but it was a bit of an obscure time, and probably nobody in the jury would have seen it anyway. But anyway, they, they decided that they would, they would jump on that and they would use that as part of their appeal, saying it wasn't fair that somebody was on, on TV talking about provocation when they were pushing that uh, he'd been provoked. Right. So, yeah, those were the two grounds for appeal. But anyway, he, he obviously missed out on that. And then, of course, after that, he um, he sought leave to appeal to the Supreme Court. You can't just uh, appeal to the Supreme Court. You have to saw it. Yeah. You have to find leave to appeal. But anyway, they, they turned him down and said, no, no, uh, the appeal court's done the right thing. Just on the provocation thing, I mean, I think to a yeah. lot of New Zealanders listening... That'll sound like straight-out victim blaming the idea well, that, that, a, that a murderer or alleged murderer might say that he'd been provoked to well, do it. Well, yeah, the interesting thing, um, Jesse, is that, uh, OK, so the, the the police officer gets into, into her room and said, what's happened here? And he says, I've killed her. He didn't say, I've killed her because she provoked me by stabbing me with scissors first. He didn't say that. He never said that. He never said that at all. It's something he's dream, he dreamed up while he was on remand in prison, waiting to be trialled, waiting to go to trial. Yeah. He probably thought to himself, I mean, why did he stay? We still don't know why he stayed. I mean, it was so odd. Did he think he was going to get himself off? I think he did, because he went on to the, on the trial. At the trial, he went on the stand for about five days. And I know for a fact that he thought that the, his, his team weren't doing a good enough job and he was going to get himself off. That's how narcissists think. And, of course, he didn't. He just dug himself a bigger hole and made it even worse for himself. Were you worried that he was going to be let off? We weren't weren't worried that he'd be let off because we knew it was going to be manslaughter anyway because the defence had said they they knew that what he'd done was manslaughter, but they just said it wasn't murder. And, of course, as the trial went on, we were a little bit nervous, actually, that... They, because the, the defence were pretty damn good. They brought up a whole lot of ridiculous stuff about Sophie that wasn't true. And, of course, that's another thing because you can't say anything. And even the prosecution can't uh, refute it because they're not there for the victim, as I say. They're there for the state. They're there for society. And that's how ridiculous the criminal justice system is. And, um, yeah, so that, that was that. You mentioned this earlier, but the, that defensive provocation... It was as a result of this case that, uh, that the legal system has changed in New Zealand. Can you explain that to us? It, it was. Well, in 2001 and again in 2007, the Law Commission had, well, they'd been asked to look at the partial defence provocation, so people had obviously been a bit concerned about it for some time. So 2001, 2007, again in 2007, the Law Commission uh, said to Parliament that they should uh, strike this particular section out of the criminal of the Crimes Act 1961 because it was hopeless, it wasn't used very much, it was hardly ever successful, and they said it, it should be deleted. And Parliament never did anything about it. It wasn't until our case, and it was quite obvious as time went on, that it was being wrongly used. And once again, I got onto the Minister of Justice, Simon Power, and said to him, after the case, I said, you know, that they shouldn't have used that partial defence provocation. There was no provocation to start with. There couldn't have been. There wasn't time for her to provoke him. And the other thing was she didn't do it. 
she didn't do anything to him. He just attacked her straight away, which which is quite obvious from the, the screaming and and um, so on. And so he agreed with me, and, I, and so I like to think that the depositions and and also yeah. the partial defence provocation, I'd like to think I had a bit to do with uh, both of those being altered and depositions being done away with. Yeah. Of course, defence defence lawyers were a bit aghast. They didn't like that idea at all. They said, well, well what are we going to do for cases like um, you know, domestic abuse and uh, what are we going to do in the future if... And where somebody's being provoked. But anyway, as I say, this particular defence was hardly ever used successfully, and it was often used in for homophobic cases where somebody yeah, touched somebody that. on the knee, sort of thing, or that. the leg, and yeah, uh, yeah, the other person had, take, had taken the so called uh, gay panic cases, um, that sort of thing. Yeah, we've, sort of we've, we've talked about it before. But even then, it wasn't very successful. The, the other thing I wanted to mention in terms of you know things that might be able to change or or some of the galling aspects of the legal system from your point of view is you mentioned how expensive it was for you guys. You didn't receive yeah. any help with that, and yet you got to watch this person receive how much in legal aid? Well, I reckon he got the best part of half a million. Half a million dollars, $500,000. Yeah. yeah. Because the, the, court, the court costs were about, from memory, about 440000 and the appeal was another 40000 all paid for by you and I, which was interesting, really, wasn't it? Because here we are, the parents and taxpayers, and we're helping to, to pay for his, his defence. You know, Jesse, he should not have been defended. That's, that's my feeling. And this particular case was so open and shut mm. uh, that, that he really didn't have a defence. He didn't have a defence. And, and our trial, we had to wait for the Bain trial to be finished. And that particular trial, the first Bain trial, five dead, three-week trial. Our case, one dead, four-and-a-half-week trial. Well, why did ours take so long? Because it was this bloody provocation thing that they were trying to force down the everyone's throat. And it was wrong. Has he showed any remorse? Well, he's not going to show any remorse because he wanted to do this. This is what he wanted to do. He wanted to get rid of her. You see, he not only killed her, but you probably know he defiled her as well when she was dead. But the the Sentencing Act 2002 only gives one more year for defiling a dead body. So, and it was interesting. So, I mean, normally for a crime like this, you get 17 years. Well, he got 18. The prosecution... Uh, said that he should get 19 years and the defence said he should get 12 years and the judge, Justice Potter, said I'll take the 19 years but I'll take a year a year off because this is his first crime. Now fancy saying that. This, this is about one of the worst crimes ever in New Zealand. Somebody stabbed 216 times and several blunt force injuries and... And she said she's going to take a, a year off because it's his first crime. No wonder we said 18 years was ridiculously light. And, and no, it, he's not going to show remorse because he wanted to do this. He wanted, he came up to our place with a knife and he wanted to kill her, locked himself in his bedroom. He knew that uh, Leslie's mother, Sophie's mother, Leslie was in the house, locked himself in the bedroom so he couldn't be in the bedroom and proceeded to kill her. It was a straightforward step. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Crimes NZ, hosted by me, Jesse Mulligan. We're so grateful to Gil Elliott for taking the time to talk to us about his lovely daughter and for all his hard work, which has resulted in some significant changes to our legal system. Thanks, Gil. This podcast is produced by Melita Tull, Charlie Drever, Sam Hollis and Ayanna Piper-Helian. It's been edited by Grant Walker and Liz Garten. Tim Watkin is executive producer of RNZ Podcasts. You can find Crimes NZ and all RNZ's great podcasts like the Aotearoa History Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio and many more. It's now also on YouTube.